Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. First question of the class, which of the following is the strongest predictor of an individual's health and status and especially why? And a lot of the time you guys are going to find in these classes that I really like to ask you the why because it's not enough just to be like, oh, it's this one. Well, why? Because if you see the question a different way or it's slightly worded differently and looking for something else, you want to make sure that you know the why, because if you know the why, you're going to be able to answer it when it's slightly different. So let's look at our options for which of the following is the strongest predictor of an individual's health status. We have age, employment, income, or low health literacy skills. And the number one one that people answer, which is the wrong answer, is age, right? Because you're like, well, the older you get, the more likely you are to have a disease. And this is definitely a great answer, but remember on the exam, we wanna be focusing on what is the best answer, right? So when I think of age, I always think about the patients I see in the hospital. So my mom, she's turning, well, I guess she already turned 60, but so she was born in 1964. And like always with my patients, I always like when I'm looking at them, I always am like, oh, are you older or younger than my mom? Because I work in adult oncology, so they tend to be like around her age or a little bit older. And I cannot tell you, you know, and this is true both in my oncology clinic, but also when I was inpatient too, the amount of people that I'm like, you were born in 73 and you look way older than my mom, you know. So I always like to think about that when I think about age of you can be really, really healthy at 60. You could be really, really unhealthy at 60, right? You could also be really unhealthy at 30 or really healthy at 30. So obviously, you are more inclined to be unhealthy as you age. And not unhealthy, that's not the right word, but you're more likely to have conditions um, as you age, and that's true. But the answer on this one that a lot of people overlook is low health literacy. And this goes back to understanding our vocab. And remember, for the exam, you want to understand the vocab in every single question, every single answer. Because if you understand that, then you're going to be able to understand the why. And again, we love the why. So low health literacy means that I have difficulty understanding kind of what is being told to me, you know, how different things connect, how what I eat impacts my health, how Taking medications impacts my health. How, you know, not going to the doctor when you have chest pain impacts my health. So the low health literacy is going to be a really, really big risk factor because you could be, you know, rich, poor, you know, old, young. But if you are not understanding things like smoking can put you at risk for lung cancer, right? Overeating and not exercising is going to put you at risk for a whole host of diseases, right? You need to keep your blood sugar under control so that you, you know, 
don't have an amputation, that's going to just increase the likelihood that you're not going to have good health outcomes. So when we're thinking about the strongest predictor, if I kind of lined people up and I was like, okay, their age, their employment, their income, their health literacy skills, your biggest risk factor would be having those low health literacy skills because you're not going to be able to kind of protect yourself from preventative things. This is a perfect wrap up. So again, especially when you're going through questions like that, and that's why I like to put those ones in the class, you need to know the why. And especially, you guys know I love InMed, but there's no explanation. So like on a question like that, you're kind of left with being like, am I wrong? And a lot of the time you're right, but we're looking for the best. Okay, next one we have is from a student who was sharing their struggle with excessive anxiety. And I love to hear about this from you guys because this is something that so many of you struggle with and it needs to be part of your study. You could be the world's leading gene and men expert, but if you're like, Dana, when I sit down and do a practice exam, when I sit down for the actual exam, my heart rate, like I, you know, just not doing well, you're not going to be prepared for the exam. So here's what the student shared with us. And again, thank you for sharing. So I'm experiencing high heart rate because of anxiety. Like I can hear my heart beat so loud when I'm taking the exam and this causes me not to do well on the exam. What can I do to reduce my anxiety? And again, this is so important to talk about because a lot of you guys that I talked to, you didn't necessarily struggle with testing anxiety during school. And now that this is like a huge, big licensing exam, all of a sudden it's something new. Um, and I've shared this story on my blog um, too. And I sometimes put in the newsletter but my entire life, I didn't have testing anxiety. And I actually didn't get it for the RD exam, but I got it when I was studying for the CNSC, which is the Certified Nutrition Support Clinician. Um, and it was honestly a great experience because it, it wasn't great at the time, but it helped me to understand my students more um, because it was just something unlike anything I've experienced. And I think from working on it myself too, and then working with a lot of you guys on it. Like I said, kind of here are some tips. So number one, you need to make sure that you are actively working on this in your studying. And a lot of the time when we're kind of studying on our own, you know, we're home, like I think about my home office, right? I got my little space heater, I have my little office blankets, it's nice, it's safe for me. But that's not really putting myself in a high stress environment. So sometimes you can find that you're doing on practice exams, practice questions, when you're doing them at home, you're like, okay, perfect, I'm focused. And then when you go take the actual exam, you're blanking out, like the student was saying, like heart rate in your ears, really hard to do. So one of the things that I think is really, really helpful is to put yourself in situations when you're doing questions that are higher stress. So two kind of favorite examples of this. Number one, if you're someone who's like, I need like the perfect environment to study, go to a coffee shop and take a practice exam because there's going to be distractions and maybe the chair is not as comfortable, you know, but putting yourself in a place where you have to be like, okay, this is an ideal conditions. This is close to the exam is really helpful. The other thing that I find is really helpful for my students with testing anxiety do is to specifically come to a live practice question class 
for those of you guys who haven't been to a live practice question class before, it's time. So you get a minute per question, two minutes for math, and I'm counting down. You know, I'm like halfway, up on time. And it's really helpful to do that to kind of stress yourself out a little bit more so that you can kind of practice, well, how do I kind of stay calm in these environments too? So that's kind of the first piece. Put yourself in more stressful situations too. Also, you need to be working on decreasing the stress too. And this is going to look different for everyone. I always, always highly recommend that my students with test anxiety talk with their doctor, their therapist, their psychiatrist. It's really, really helpful to kind of make sure there's, you know, no kind of other additional interventions that you need. But you need to be doing things other than studying. Right, if studying is stressing you out so so much and you're not giving yourself room to breathe or kind of think outside of this, it's really, really hard to have that quality studying and we know quality over quantity. So some things that I did that I found was really, really helpful is I when I was doing my studying is I would take walks. And for me, taking a walk was super relaxing, like it was allowed me to kind of get out of my student brain, out of myself. For you guys, different relaxing activities might look different. Like could be an exercise class, could be talking with your family, could be cooking, could be reading, whatever it is. But add to add that to your schedule. A lot of times when I work with students one-on-one -on -one to build their schedule, they're like, I'm not sleeping, I'm not exercising, I'm not seeing my friends. And all of that kind of isolating behavior just kind of adds to the stress too. So making sure you're kind of putting in that time to focus on yourself. Also, if you're experiencing testing anxiety, I highly recommend you apply for the accommodations. Now, there is certain documentation you need for the accommodations, um, but again, if you're seeing a PCP regularly, therapist, psychiatrist, they can fill out this paperwork for you very easily. And I've never had a knock on wood, never had a student get denied. But for my students with testing anxiety, how I like to use the extra, and usually we do extra time. Um, some of you guys who have anxiety and ADHD might need the extra time and the separate room, but let's just focus on the extra time for right now. But it allows them to just take breaks. Because when you're feeling yourself like going up and up and up and up and up in the stress, and you're like, I can't, if you ask me what color the sky is, I would say it's purple that's a great time to take a break. So if you have the extra time on the exam, a lot of time my students with testing anxiety aren't using it like as extra time to read the questions. They're using it as extra time to go, go to the bathroom, take a little lap, take a second, take a breath, close their eyes too. So lots of different things to do. And again, think about what is most helpful for you. Um, and then again, too, if you know you already have anxiety and you're working with a healthcare provider for it, too, again, talk with them about other interventions because there might be something, especially with like medications and things, that you might be able just to take for the exam to help calm you down because it's fr so frustrating. I always feel for my students, too, when they come out of an exam attempt um, and I'll meet with them on the discovery call before we start working together and they're like, I know this information, Dana. I know it. I just get, you know, I get in my head, I get the stress. So again, don't let the anxiety be the reason you're not passing the exam, but you got to take the steps. So 
just some helpful things. Again, I've been there. I work with a lot of people who have it, and that's when, too, having a tutor sometimes is really helpful. Another person kind of in, in your corner, too. Okay. So move on from that to Krebs cycle, which I know would never stress you guys out. So here's a question from a student. So an increased plasma pyruvate level is an indicator of what? A, iron deficiency, B, riboflavin deficiency, C, excess carbohydrate ingestion, or D, thiamine deficiency. Um, and this student was saying, uh, you know, I'm just not sure why this is the right answer, which is the thiamine. So what you want to think with this, yeah, with this question is kind of pause and be like, what do we know about pyruvate cliff? Where is pyruvate? So pyruvate, right, what we're thinking about our Krebs cycle is glucose, glucose 6-phosphate, pyruvic acid. And what's below that? Well, that's our acetyl-CoA. And when we're thinking about kind of the most important, the key players for our transition from pyruvic acid to acetyl-CoA, it's the thiamine, right? This is why if we have a thiamine deficiency, we get uh, not hepatic encephalopathy, Wernicke's encephalopathy. Um, and so this student was saying, but like, uh, you know, isn't riboflavin, you know, couldn't that be important? And again, a lot of the vitamins are involved. And with the exam, you're not looking for like, but could it never be involved? No, but you're saying if I have to put money on this, what's the number one thing? And when we're talking about glucose metabolism, we're talking about, right, lack of thiamine is Warnicke's encephalopathy, right? We're not talking about uh, riboflavin deficiency. So when we're thinking about elevated pyruvate levels, that's telling us there's something that's not adding up. For some reason, I can't convert to acetyl-CoA. And that major blocking point is going to be thiamine, too. Next one is a great chart that I put um, up on the Facebook page. So if you just search FDA chart, you'll find it. Or for any of you guys who only listen to the podcast, just shoot me an email, um, Dana J. Fryer Nutrition at gmail.com, and just put like FDA chart in the subject line and ask me for it, and I'll send it to you. Um, but it's regulations at a glance because I find it's super duper confusing who regulates what. Um, and if you haven't checked it out yet, I just added a new class to the nutrition labels and government agencies class. There's now a separate 90-minute practice question class just in government agencies. If you hate government agencies, definitely, um, definitely give that one a listen. It's going to help you. It's going to help you a lot. Um, but where I find people get stuck on is what's going on with the FDA in dietary supplements. Because the FDA does not have pre-market approval for dietary supplements, but they do require pre-market notification. So I'd be like, hello, I'm sending out Dana's study vitamins, right? And they're like, great, right? They're not going to ask me like, what's in them? You know, are they safe? Any of these? No, 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 no. This isn't a drug. But I will have to follow the FDA guidelines for labeling. I will have to follow the FDA guidelines for re reporting adverse events that happen when people take my drugs. So when the question is, who regulates the supplement? The FDA are like the police, right? I got to tell them, hey, I'm making it. I got to say I'm going to follow the laws about labeling it. And I'm going to tell them when things happen. But I do not need to get their approval to take it to market. You will need 
pre-approval for drugs, biologics, and medical devices as well, too. Next question we have is about um, the campaign Bacto model for cultural competence. And this is one that I find a lot of people get stuck on because it's like, well, where is it in the answer not in there, which is why I recommend you use multiple sources so you can see things a variety of ways and kind of piece together things. So how I like to kind of explain this model is this is like good cultural competence, right? For like, I think of like my job at the hospital, like my cultural compliance is like that I take like a health strain training and it's like, check, you know, did I answer the 10 question quiz? But right? Just knowing what cultural competency is doesn't mean I actually am culturally competent. So I like this model because it has five parts that says you have to have all these five parts to say you're culturally competent. So first, you have to have cultural awareness. So what you're saying with cultural awareness is the fact that you're saying, well, I know that there's this culture and I know it's different than mine. I know some things about it. I know, I know what it is, right? Then you have to have cultural desire. I actually have to want to know things about this culture, right? So like, I'll give an example. So the town I live in is very Jewish, right? So my cultural awareness would be being like, okay, there's a lot, you know, I, there's a lot of Jewish people who might come to my hospital. Um, they have, you know, they might follow a kosher diet, which is slightly different than ours, right? That cultural desire is like, oh, you know, I see a training on kosher diets. I'm going to take it. I'm going to ask my patient about like, hey, you know, just want to understand we we serving turkey and cheese sandwiches. Is this something you could have? No? Okay. Like, I have to actually want to be involved. First, the awareness is just like, I know about it. Desire is, let me learn. Let me learn about it. Then we also have cultural encounter. So cultural encounter is that I actually work with this problem right? So this again, culturally common, it means like I can successfully work with this population. So I want to work with, you know, if we're sticking with kind of the Jewish culture, kosher example, I'm working with someone who's Jewish. Then we have the cultural knowledge, which is I'm familiarizing myself with this, right? So I'm, you know, I'm reading about it. I'm looking at worksheets about it. You know, I'm educating myself. So uh, some of these have some overlap, right? Like we said, desire might be like, oh, you attend a webinar, but that knowledge is like what you're getting at the webinar. The cultural desire is like that I'm going to go. And then also the skill, right? I could know what kosher is. I could know everything there too. But the skill would be like using the information I have, the desire I have to actually work with someone, right? being like, oh, goodness gracious, this meal plan I usually use has a lot of mixed meat and dairy you know, like, let me make some adjustments so it's going to fit. So it is a really great model. And I think exactly kind of what cultural competence is, is it's not just being like, this population is Spanish. They like to eat rice and beans, right? It's like, well, how are they different? Tell me about it. I want to learn. Let me work with someone who has this. Let me, you know, look at more resources. Let me adapt what I normally do to work with this population. So it is really quite a good, it is really quite a, quite a good model, which is good. Um, next question we have, it looks like pocket prep. Um, and so this student was saying, I'm really struggling with the pricing equations. 
Um, it's difficult for me to remember them and I'm not sure how to use them. So if you haven't already, definitely go to my free downloads because this will have my pricing study guide. Because one of the things that's really hard, and I find this with all the math too, which is why I have my math boot camp that works in this, is the equations are like thrown throughout a lot of materials. I know most of you guys have Inman, but even in the other materials, they're kind of like thrown or whatever. And you're usually not like comparing, you know, what they are, um, what they are too. So when we're thinking about the different pricing models, I like to use my study guide to kind of compare and contrast. So there's three main models. So we have the prime cost method. And when we're thinking about prime cost method, I like to think like prime is like the first reason, well, the first like way I think about things. So like I often use this, not that I really use this selling price equation, but like I kind of use prime closer to how I price my classes, right? So prime is going to have a few main components. Number one, it's going to give you the markup factor. If it doesn't give you the markup factor, can't be prime. So it gives you the markup factor raw food costs, labor costs, and then plus or minus hidden costs. So with the prime cost method, what I'm kind of saying is like, let me find my total cost and then say I want to make times the markup factor. Like, you know, like, so like if I find the total cost times 2.5 markup factor. So like what, how I was saying, it's like the first thing you think of. So like for my Wednesday night classes, I often am like, okay, well, how do I want prices? Is it a new class? Do I already have it? Did I redo the slides? Like, how much money do I want to make off of it? Then you have factor traditional pricing. This is my favorite because it's just two components. You just need food cost percentage and raw food cost. So those are the only two things. Then you take 100 divided by the food cost percentage, get the market factor. So this one, you're solving for the market factor and then multiply that times the raw food cost. And then the last one is cost plus, uh, cost plus. So this one's an ugly one. And how I like to kind of think about this is cost plus, I have to kind of plus up all of my percentages that it's given me, subtract those from 100 to see, well, what is my food cost percentage? So in this one, we're solving for food cost percentage. So they're not... We're solving for food cost percentage, so it's not going to give it to you. So if they're giving you food cost, um, if they're going to be giving you food cost percentage, it cannot be cost plus. So you're solving for that, and then you're going to be multiplying the, um, sorry, you're going to be taking the raw food cost and then dividing that by the food cost percentage. So let's look at this pocket prep one. And keep this one in mind. So it says Cody's Prime Seafood and Steakhouse introduces a special surf and turf menu item. What would the selling price be for a new menu item using the following food cost percentage method? So already it's not telling me which one to use. So I kind of have that checklist of, like I said, the selling prices where I'm like, okay, let me look for what I, which components I have. And kind of then I'm going to pick the equation based on what I have. Okay, so raw food cost is $14.457. So I'm like, okay, all three of them have raw food cost. So save that. So I didn't eliminate any. 
Okay, then it's giving me food cost percentage, right? So I'm like, ooh, I said I can't use I can't use cost plus if I have food cost percentage. I would be able to use traditional, okay? And then prime, I don't use food cost. So like right now I have the most data I could for traditional or factor. Okay, then it gives me labor costs, which I would only use for prime. And then it gives me labor food cost percentage, which I would only use for cost plus. So this is a little confusing because you're like, oh my God, Dana, I, I got information for all of them. Yes, but the question is, which equation do you have all the information for? So again, I would start from the top. Okay, prime. If I do not have my markup factor given, it can't be prime. Let me look again. I have raw food cost, food cost percentage, labor, and then we have labor cost percentage. Cannot be prime. Okay, what about traditional or factor? My favorite, because we only need two things. Raw food cost, got it. And then food cost percentage, got it. Okay. Next, we have our cost plus. So I said cost plus, I, it's not going to be it if they're already giving you food cost percentage because that's the whole point. I have to solve for it. So this allows you to go, perfect, I'm going to do traditional or factor. So 100 divided by 40%, the food cost percentage, 2.5 is that markup factor, times 14.457, and that's going to be $36, which is the answer. So a big part of this is making sure you're doing that checklist. And again, definitely grab that study guide. It's on the free downloads, which is in the show notes of the podcast episode. Um, and then if you're on the Facebook page, just search selling price. Okay. Next one, we have the other least favorite equation. So here's the question. The chef is planning to provide a pot roast from beef chunk that has a 72% yield. So right away, I'm going to label 72% yield. If the chef needs 175 three-ounce servings, how many pounds of chuck does he need to be purchased? So this is a math one where you got to stay organized. So like right away, I want to label what I have. 72% yield. Then the I need to finish with 175 three-ounce servings. This is my edible portion, what we're eating. So let's find out how much that is because I want to be in pounds for my answer. So 175 times three ounces divided by 16 ounces in a pound. So I have need to finish with, I need to finish with 32.8 pounds. So then I think about my EPAP equation. So as purchased times percent yield equals EP. So I take my EP divided by 0.72. And that tells me, well, I need to buy 46 pounds if we round up to kind of finish this. Okay. Next one we have um, is less of a question, but more of important vocab to know. Um, I put up a great graphic of diffusion versus osmosis. So diffusion, you want to remember, is the movement of molecules from high concentration to low concentration. So we're moving those molecules. Versus osmosis, 
is the movement of water or a solvent across a semi-permeable membrane from high to low. So here, only the solvent moves. So you definitely want to keep that in mind because it can get very, very tricky. Right. Next question I put up is a picture of someone who has lots of fluid in their peritoneal cavity. And I said, what is this? And what's the MNT? So this is ascites. Remember, the fluid accumulation in ascites, cirrhosis would not be the answer here. Cirrhosis is the condition that would cause this. So with ascites, it's because of that portal hypertension from the cirrhosis, right, that irreversible scar tissue in the liver. And basically, it's causing a lack of blood flow. So the fluid from the blood is kind of getting squeezed out of the liver when it tries to pass through and into the peritoneal cavity. So the MNT for this is small frequent meals because since you have all that fluid on your peritoneal cavity, it's pushing down on your stomach. Um, and then also high calorie, high protein, fluid restriction as well too. Next question, a child with PKU would tolerate which foods best? Bread, diet soda, kiwi, or lentils. And we all know, right, with PKU, right, no phenylalanine supplement tyrosine. But if that's all you know, you're not going to be able to answer this question. So kind of the rationale you'd want to be thinking with this is, okay, well, phenylalanine, what type of amino acid is it? It's essential, right? So yeah, any animal foods are going to have phenylalanine. No animal foods here. Well, lentils is a high-protein food. Cross that out. Bread, right, is going to have more protein than kiwi or diet soda. Take that out. Diet soda, though, is going to have aspartame, which is high in phenylalanine, so take that out. So kiwi would be the best answer because it is the lowest protein on there, too. Um, next question I have is, how does the glomerular filtration rate impact the protein needs? So what you want to remember with the glomerular filtration rate is this is like our Brita filter, right? That's what we use. So the lower the filtration is, the more you need to restrict protein. So when you're in stage one and two, there's no protein restriction, 0.8 uh, to one grams per kg. When you hit stage three and four, that's when you're that's when you're going to be doing your, um, that's when you're going to be doing your 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kg of protein. Next question we have is one that I actually have also gotten in my email this week too from my one-on-one -on -one student about difference between R value and P value for research. So what I like to think about is R value is think R for relationships. This is telling me if there's a relationship. So we have kind of a range between negative one and positive one. If the R is zero, no relationship. The closer you get to negative one, the stronger negative correlation, which is an inverse relationship. The closer you get to positive one, the stronger positive correlation. So if you have a question, and you guys are going to see this in my course where I say, which of the following data sets have the least positive correlation. If I say least positive, the numbers I'm looking for is like 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3. Least positive is not the same as negative. 
So if I have a negative correlation, that means the more I do something, the less I get something. So back to our conversation before, the more test anxiety you have, the less exam score. Positive correlation is the more I study, the better my exam score. Versus the p-value is the likelihood that your data is just up to chance. So this is the statistical significance of your data set. So you want this to be as low as possible because that's going to be the least likelihood that you have just data due to chance. So the closer you are to zero, kind of the smallest numbers so like a p of less than 0.001 or less than 0.05 would be kind of stronger than a p of, of you know, greater than that. So you have to set this before you take, um, you do the experiment to say, well, what level of significance do we want? Right. Next question I had is what is the GRAS list? So GRAS, G-R-A-S, is generally recognized as safe. This is a list of food additives approved by the FDA. They're kind of like grandfathered in being like, yeah, these seem to be fine. If I want to put them in my food, I don't really have to prove that they're safe at all, too. So that's one thing to be thinking of, too. Next one um, we have is pregnancy. So a woman is five foot six inches tall, 150 pounds. She's gained 13 pounds in six uh, in six months. During the rest of her pregnancy, how much weight should she gain? So with this, first thing is do the BMI. So she has a healthy BMI, 24. For that range, you want to gain between 25 and 35 pounds. So she's already gained 13. So you'd be saying, well, she could gain anywhere between 12 and 22 pounds. Um, two, and then remember, we want to be looking at about one pound of weight gain per week. Okay. Next one, some more research vocab. We love some good research vocab, right? So what we're thinking about here is what is the difference between sensitivity and specificity. So here's some great ways to kind of think about it. So when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about our, uh, when we're thinking about our sensitivity, we're saying how many people who were, were actually sick were correctly identified as having the condition. So you're looking at true positives here versus with specificity, you're looking at how many healthy people were identified as not having the condition. So this is looking at a true positive. You can also look at this kind of opposite of your saying sensitivity is looking at false negatives, right? And specificity is looking at true negative, at true negatives. So you have to watch the wording of these questions too because it can definitely get confusing. One student in the comments on this on the Facebook page said, I like to remember the differences by saying sensitivity for true, like highlighting the T in sensitivity, and specificity highlighting that F for false. But remember, don't oversimplify it because you want to think of sensitivity is true positive. Specificity is going to be that false positive. So just watch your wording on that so you don't get confused. 
Um, next question, I said, which type of food is best for a patient who is dehydrated, isotonic, hypotonic, hypotonic? And remember, isotonic is the best. When we're thinking of iso, it means like the same strength as blood. So this is going to allow you, um, this is going to allow you to kind of have an easy flow across the membrane too. Um, next one we have is, according to the Joint Commission, which of the following is a fundamental to cost-effective performance, improvement, safety, professional expertise, technology, or D, employee motivation? Remember, JCO is all about safety, especially that patient safety. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.